somewhere when the fire alarm was going off. Those things can be deafening, piercing, shrill, uh, even physically painful, some of them. They are so obnoxiously loud, and you just want it to stop. No one that I know enjoys listening to a fire alarm go off, but they're necessary. They serve an important purpose. Our passage today is a bit like that. When we read of God's wrath and judgment, these are warning sirens, these are alarms sounding in our hearts and our minds. And admittedly today, we've got a a pretty heavy topic, the wrath and, and judgment of God. But it serves an important purpose. We need to come to terms. We need to come to terms with God's wrath and judgment. And at some point, it needs to be what we speak of with those that we care about and love. It's probably not going to be how we start the conversation. But at some point, we need to get there. And so working through these verses this morning, calling out these warnings to you, there's no way around the the heaviness of this, the, the sobriety of this, but it's good and it is necessary. And even in the midst of of these warnings, there is also hope, real hope, shining brightly, somewhat unexpected, especially for a passage like this, but hope nonetheless. Hope for you this morning, especially if you feel like you don't have it all together. Hope for you, especially this morning, if you don't feel like you've got it all figured out. Hope for you, especially this morning, if maybe... You don't have the greatest track record. There's hope especially for you. Last week we, we looked at Abraham's very memorable prayer upon hearing of the impending destruction for Sodom. He asked, could this city be spared if as few as ten righteous were to be found there? And the Lord said, yes. Yes, I'll I'll spare it. And then the Lord sent his two angels on a fact-finding mission to see if, in fact, there were ten righteous to be found there, and that's where we pick up this week. I'm actually going to do what I did last week. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm not going to read the whole thing in one fell swoop. And I've also not given you an outline this week. I've given you this weird quadrant looking table thing because there's four things that I want you to see and they're found throughout the passage we'll see them at multiple places we're going to talk a lot about Lot who he is what makes him so special Uh, We're going to talk about the wickedness of Sodom, certainly, and, and and the destruction that that warrants. We're going to talk about rescue, the rescue that is offered, and finally, and importantly, hope. Uh, We've already 
sung about what we want the Lord to do. Jeff's already prayed, and so we're going to just dig right into God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Here's the first three verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, as we dig in with Lot here, we're going to find we've got quite a mixed bag. He's a very complicated guy. And we've got a little deja vu here because Lot's showing very similar hospitalities to these mysterious guests who we now know to be angels, but the same great hospitality that Abraham showed them, Lot shows them, stay, wash your feet, let me fix you a really great meal, stay the night. And this is where we get our first hint of trouble. The angels refuse the offer to stay the night. They say, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to pitch a tent over in Central Park. It's like you can see Lot's eyes get wide as saucers. He says, no, whatever you do, don't do that. See, Lot, Lot knows the city. He knows the inhabitants of the city, and he knows that this plan to go camping will not end well, and and we quickly find out why. Lot's exactly right. Look at verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, we're the men who came to you tonight. Bring them out to us that we may know them. Oh boy, this is not good. Here's why Lot didn't want them camping out in the town. He knew the men of the city to be both violent and perverse. And apparently this is universally the case. It's it's not just an isolated few bad apples. This is every man in the city without distinction. And it does not say that the men of the city wanted to know who these men were. It says they wanted to know them. That's knowing them in the biblical sense of the word, where know is a somewhat gentler, euphemistic way of indicating sexual intimacy. And so I do need to mention here that some folks with an agenda would have you reinterpret this passage. And we say, oh, no, 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 that's not what is implied here. Uh, You're reading something in that's just not there. These men simply wanted to know who these strangers were. 
who these people were that had entered the city gate. That's all that is going on. That's what the people with the agenda want you to now believe. But unfortunately, that argument just does not hold water. Not when you consider the broader biblical context of how this word is often used, and especially in how Lot responds. Lot knows exactly what they're asking for, what they're demanding, and what Lot offers to these men instead makes zero sense at all Unless what's going on here is very much sexual in nature. Here's how Lot responds to this threat beginning in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Here's more of this very, very complicated nature of Lot. He's admirable in many ways. He's he's trying to protect these angelic visitors. He he goes out, even shuts the door behind him, putting himself in some pretty great danger, no way of escape now. And he makes this valiant attempt. I mean, he starts out polite. He's trying to be tactful. He's, hey, fellas, come on now. Please. Don't do this. You need to consider part of how complicated Lot's nature is is because of how compromised he is. How very much assimilated he is into the culture of Sodom. You can actually trace this in, in, in the scripture. It's interesting. Uh, way back in, in chapter 13, it said that Lot settled near Sodom. But then when we get to chapter 14, when Abraham has to go and rescue him, it says Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And here at the beginning of this chapter, Lot's sitting at the gate. That's, that's, a, that's a place of prominence. It's a place of standing. It's taken time, no doubt, for him to become a man of of prominence and standing, and very likely it has also involved a lot of compromise along the way. See, you just don't live comfortably in a land of wickedness without compromise. You just don't. You get the sense reading this passage that that Lot is no doubt bothered by what's going on here. He sees that it is wickedness. And yet, he's still there. He hasn't left. 
The city's already had a bad reputation before he decided to go live there. And now he's been here long enough. Clearly, has, he's had plenty of confirmation. Yes, those rumors were true. But he's still there. He wants to have it both ways. He, he wants dual citizenship, if you will. In the kingdom of Sodom and the kingdom of God. And that is only ever always a recipe for disaster. It never works. Those compromises that you have to make along the way to try to make it work, they come back to bite you. Sitting at the gate. That's where judgments are made. That's where people go to have their disputes arbitrated. That's where instruction takes place. And I think that's where this retort from these men comes in verse 9. This probably isn't the first time that Lot has said something about wickedness of the city. Remember, he, he, he's divided. He's, oh, he's trying desperately to straddle this fence. Calling out the wickedness in one instance, but then condoning it in the next. But the more you compromise, and the longer you compromise the worse it gets. And it will put you into some pretty impossible situations. Situations where there's just no way out. There's no good solution to your problems. And we see that here, don't we, with Lot? Look how he tries to protect these men. Here. Take my virgin daughters. He offers his daughters to be the victims of a gang rape. That's his solution. Trading one evil for an even more heinous evil. Friends, that's exactly the kind of thing you can expect from a life of compromise. You cannot have it both ways. Cannot, cannot, cannot. Now, I don't, I don't know what the evil is that perhaps this morning you are compromising on personally. I don't know what the evil is that you're getting a little too comfortable with around you, but it's going to end badly. The wickedness of Sodom, the resulting destruction, it needs to be a warning to us this morning. And I will say one other thing about Sodom's wickedness this morning that I think really, really needs to be said, especially in our audience this morning. We need to stop thinking of Sodom's wickedness so narrowly. Right, when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, instantly one sin pops into your mind. A terrible sin. A heinous sin. But when we think narrowly and only about that one sin, we tend to let ourselves off the hook. We say, ooh, that's some bad stuff over there. I sure am glad that doesn't apply to me. 
But here's what we need to realize. The end is not the beginning. Where Sodom ends up, the final sin that seals Sodom's fate and ignites God's destruction and judgment and wrath is not the sins that they started with. They started with much more subtle, innocuous, respectable sins. Sins that don't raise many eyebrows. They're far less noteworthy. But the prophet Ezekiel, later, sometime later, turn to Ezekiel 16. This can be homework for this afternoon or later this week. Ezekiel 16, he's prophesying against Jerusalem. And he's saying that God's own people resemble and, in fact, are worse than Sodom and her sins of pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. They were too comfortable. They failed to look after the poor and needy. They were haughty. And no sexual sin is listed here. See, these are the root sins that eventually get us to the red letter sins. Paul does something similar in the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1, this this very important chapter dealing with sin and wickedness of the world, including these big red letter notorious sins sexual sins. I find it very alarming where Paul says all those big red letter notorious sins start. What's the gateway there? What what opens the door? Again, later, Romans 1, your homework, and you'll see how it starts from a failure